Would you turn your Bibles to Romans 14 with me? We're finishing this chapter with two verses. I would ask you to look with me at verse 22 and 23. Romans 14, 22 says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It is interesting that in a chapter about liberty and freedom and all that we are forgiven of in Christ and how there is not an inherently wicked atom or element in God's creation, we finish the chapter with the word sin. The key to stewarding all of this is that we see every decision we make through the screen of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We, we call that carom deo. I shared that term with you about a month ago. It is to operate as a steward as though you are in the presence of God. So the choice you make, how do you make that choice in the presence of God? Does it change? If you literally consider yourself standing in the throne room, or would you say, I have clear conscience. I will perform that whether literally in his presence or spiritually confessing we are in his presence. So we want to address this sermon as worship with clear conscience. Worship with clear conscience. Children, you can be dismissed to children's church. You can make your way to class if you uh, would choose. The rest of us, I would invite you to pray with me. Lord, we ask that you deliver us from evil because yours is the kingdom To you belongs the honor and the glory. And so in your name we pray, amen. We're studying this chapter that calls us to be patient and tolerant with each other's liberty. Uh, That is a a bit of a, a striking concept in our culture because being tolerant usually means excusing sin. However, I want to remind you that Paul has already explained the power of the gospel. And so here, when we're told to be patient with each other's individual choices, it is to be patient with another brother or sister's individual choices. And Paul's explained that those who have been buried with Christ are also risen with him to walk in new life. So we're not talking about people who operate by default in sin. We're talking about people who only sin contrary to their nature. They sin contrary to their nature. So there is this regeneration that we anticipate when we say to someone, go make Christ-honoring choices. It is your liberty in Christ. The context of all that is Romans 12.1. Begging us by the mercy of God to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. This is our reasonable worship. So Romans 14 is an instruction manual on how to worship like priests before God. As we do that worship, we do it together. The Bible pretty clearly calls us to worship together. 
I don't think Romans 14 would even need to exist if God's call to the Christian was to be isolated and operate individually. If it wasn't for the fact that we're called to worship together, Romans 14 would not be necessary. But Romans 14 is about worshiping God in a corporate setting where there's a lot of diversity. This chapter says the diversity sometimes will be some of your Christian friends will be what's called weaker than other Christian friends. They will have sensitivity of their conscience. They will feel like there are things that are just bad. In that diversity, we learn a lot from Jesus in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus comes to a Samaritan woman at the well. Immediately, there's diversity. He's a man, she's a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. Immediately, there's diversity, and she points to it right away. She says, we're supposed to worship in either Mount Ebal or Gerizim, but you say worship in Mount Jerusalem. And Jesus says, you need to stop asking questions about how we're different, and you need to understand how we have to be the same. So Jesus turns her attention away from her particular preference that her tribe had, and she tur- he turns it to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. And, and that's something for us to learn here. Romans 14 is addressing the fact that there is diversity among us as worshipers. But this text has often turned our attention to what's more important than the things we choose to do differently. Look at chap, uh, chapter 14, look at verse 3. He says, don't you cast judgment on the weak brother because God has welcomed him. Paul, like Jesus in John 4, Paul turns the attention to a doctrine of justification by faith. Look at verse 4. He says, that brother or sister who stands in front of you, and you might think they're wrong, will be upheld. The Lord makes them stand. This is the doctrine of persevering of the saints, that God preserves his people. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, we're reminded of the worship emphasis, like in John 4. This is the doxology, the meaning of life. Look at verse 8. The reorienting of the issue from food and holy days to the doctrine of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, verse 11, the cross of Christ and ultimately the judgment seat of God. This chapter has effectively invited us to reorient our focus from those little things that we would do differently to those bigger things that are absolutely imperative to every worshiper. Now, Romans 14 is not an invitation for us to drive our anchor deep in our current opinion. It's not. Look, look with me again at chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him not to quarrel over opinions. Welcome them, not for the sake of debate, but yet for the sake of discipleship. So the discipleship of the mind, what we talked about several weeks ago as the conscience, your conscience. J.I. Packer said, the Puritans were supremely concerned about conscience. 
That points to the ultimate concern about God, to glorify God and enjoy him. Because we're going to find in these final two verses that the very same thing that for you, you have liberty to do, you may have a brother who does not have liberty to do, and that very same thing will be sin in their life, even while it's not in your life. And conscience is imperative in navigating that as a worshiper of God. The word conscience, conscience, comes from a Latin word, consentia. It means to have knowledge that came from somewhere else. To have knowledge that came from somewhere else. Now think about that. Your conscience is developed by what? How did your conscience get to the place it is today? Well, we would love to say by the shaping of the scripture, right? The word has built my conscience, but let's be honest. It probably came from wherever you came from. Your conscience probably came from your family, the community that you lived in, the stuff that you exposed yourself to. Maybe you engaged in things that were really sinful, and now anything that's like that, you feel is evil. Our conscience, our knowledge from another, is first shaped by our exposure, our our cultural context. Now, what we're talking about in discipleship is that conscience being reshaped, there being an introduction of new gospel information that is knowledge from another, and that is from God's word and his spirit. The closing two verses are fitting for this chapter. In every choice, there is two potentials. Gospel contentment or faithless regret. You will, you will face dozens of choices. What's right, what's wrong, what's okay, what's not. And in every choice, there's two potential outcomes. Gospel contentment or faithless regret. Now, I want to talk to you and I want to equip you for those choices that you're going to face today and tomorrow and Tuesday. I want, to, I want to equip you for stewarding those choices. And I would say this, that what we're going to hear today is that all of us in Christ should walk by a faith that the work of God is complete. Walk by a faith that the word of God is complete. And yet, walk by faith that the word of God is ongoing. I'm going to explain how those two both operate. There is an already, but not yet, regarding God's work of regeneration in us. There's an already, but not yet. Salvation is already, but it's not yet. It's still being done. In other words, I am not who I used to be, but I am not who I someday will be. Right? All right, so let's talk about those two. Let me go to the first one in verse 22. We should be walking by faith that the work of God is already completed. The work of God being already completed. Worshiping with faith in God's completed work, verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. The faith that you have. Now, 
Certainly this is saving faith, but it's more than just saving faith. He's not saying don't witness. Don't, don't tell other people that faith in Christ is the way of salvation. He's not saying that. He's saying the faith you have that Jesus Christ is the reason you're justified, now operate in that faith between you and God. Okay? He starts with the emphatic you. You. This is personal. It's for you today. Have the faith that you have to yourself. This is the quality of faith. This is the walk of faith. In other words, he's not speaking here about saving faith, but displaying faith. He already introduced this in what might have been hard for us to understand. You want to flip back to Romans 1.17? Romans 1.17, right in the beginning of his letter, he introduces this concept of, yes, saving faith, but also operating faith. Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. Regarding that gospel that is the power to save us, he says, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, not be saved by faith. There is a faith that comes to us that equips us to operate in faith. So there is this saving faith and there is this operating faith. We know that the righteous walk by faith, right? They walk by faith. So we're talking about this operating faith, the faith you have that Christ is our salvation. Now walk in it, but not in a way to wound others, but have that faith to yourself between you and God. Rather than the faith that enables anyone who has it to follow without hesitation, but to take a course of action that won't wound the weaker brother. Schreiner says this, that faith that we do not parade, but we exercise it, where only we know about it. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Another commentator says this. True faith is an invisible relation between man and God. That's true. Hebrews tells us that. An invisible relationship between man and God. A confidence in God that is so complete that a man who has it knows that no religious exercise can add to the security of his relationship with God. But the moment faith begins to parade itself as a visible thing, which can be demonstrated by the choice of eating and drinking, it ceases to be faith and becomes weakness. The faith that you have operate consistently. So do you truly believe in salvation by faith alone in Christ alone? Now, your spoken theology says yes. I truly believe in regeneration, in adoption, by faith alone in Christ alone. Your spoken theology says yes. But then there comes a myriad of choices. And you're tempted to say, these are the things I have to do to keep God happy with me. And then our lived theology conflicts with our spoken theology. So the faith that you have, keep that between you and God. 
don't parade that in a way that's going to wound someone else. And then this word of encouragement. Blessed is the one who. This blessing. Some translations use the word happy. This is more than an emotion. This is a, this is a joy and a confidence at the soul level. And that's not surprising. I think a great theme verse in Romans 14 is verse 17. And all of the noise, lift your eyes above the events and focus on the substance. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy. So he says, blessed is the one. He doesn't mean, listen, you'll be in a good mood. As long as you operate in faith before God, you'll, you'll have good days. He doesn't say that. He says, blessing to those the one who does not pass judgment on himself by what he approves. Again, <laughs> the, the real life, the street level application of faith operation is do you make the same choice if you see yourself standing right before God. You're going to be given a liberty to steward tomorrow. Do you choose what to do with that liberty differently when you say, oh, I'm doing this before God? In other words, when you go ahead and take liberty, 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 and then lay your head on the pillow at night and feel guilt. Blessed is the one who does not pass judgment on himself by what he approves. I want to explain this as an application in the gospel. And so I I want you to turn twice this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. You know how great Hebrews is? Hebrews is basically like um, Adam is not better, Jesus is better. Moses is not better, Jesus is better. Uh, Abraham is not better, Jesus is better. Religion is not better, Jesus is better. Okay, that's Hebrews. And here in chapter 10 is the religion is not better, Jesus is better. Okay? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. And so, walking by faith, worshiping by faith that God's work is done. The faith that you have. Does the faith that you have, even as you speak, I hope, that you would say verbally, Christ has finished my justification at the cross. Done. The wrath of God that filled the cup, the bitter wine, has been consumed. And Jesus says, the cup's empty. Do you say that that's true? I hope so. And here's why. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. When Christ came into the world, he said... Sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering and sin offering you do not take pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said this above, verse 8, You have neither desired nor take pleasure in sacrifices and offering, burnt offering and sin offering. Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first. In order to establish the second, Jesus 
completes your personal responsibility to please God. And by that, will we have been sanctified, verse 10, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now listen, let's explain that in verse 11. Every priest stands up every day at the service, offering over and over the same sacrifice. And it can never take away sin. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. You sit down when the work's done. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their heart and write them on their minds Then he said, I will remember their sins no more and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. My question, when it comes to stewarding our liberties, is do we have more than just a spoken theology that the work of God is done? Do we have a functional testimony that the work of God is done? Is Christ all in all? Or do our selected standards somehow shore up the work of Christ? My call to you is to worship in faith that God's work is complete. However, verse 23 remains. Let's talk about the second point. Worship with the faith in God's ongoing work. Worship with faith in God's ongoing work. So verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So as opposed to the summary statement about having faith between you and God, that those secondary items are not inherently evil, he brings up this doubter. This is the sensitive conscience. This is the weak. He uses the word doubt. Whoever doubts, it's a military term. Um, (laughs) You see the battlefield? And you have both opposing armies. And something happens that divides one of the armies in half. Or maybe, maybe the army gets flanked. And half the army has to turn and fight this way. And half the army has to turn and fight this way. And you know that's a problem, right? Years ago, back when I was doing activities with youth groups, I remember there were a couple of us leaders and we were doing a paintball activity. And there was this bunker that we had gone to hide in. How many of you have done paintball? You ever done paintball? 
Okay, that's a good, I think paintball's a good time. Um, it's, uh, there's a little bit of adrenaline rush. Like, you do not want to get hit in the neck with a cold paintball. You don't want that to happen. And so we're playing paintball, and we're in this bunker. It's a V-shaped bunker, and there's a group of the opposing team is facing us and, and this V-shaped bunker. Well, what gradually starts to happen, and we kind of panic, is that the opposing group starts to go around behind us. Now, the V-shaped bunker that was deflecting all of the paintballs is now going to funnel all of the paintballs, right? And, and we instantly became divided, separated from our security. Our security became our entrapment. That's the word here. To the one who doubts, who becomes separated from their gospel confidence, it's sin. To be cut off from your defenses, the gospel that says to you, soul, I am a sinner, but there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. And I get cut off from that confession. And now I'm faced with a choice to make. Should I do that? And I say to my soul, that's sin. But I do it anyway. It is sin. Because I have made the choice to engage in what I perceive as sin. I have surrendered the priority of worship. I have forfeited the glory of God and engaged in something that I thought was sin but wanted to do it anyway then it is sin. Not because of whatever your hand touched, but because you had a self-serving attitude that disregarded the sufficiency, the goodness, the promises of God. Was eating fruit in the garden sin? No. It was a bunch of fruit in the garden. But God said, trust me, worship me, treasure me. And Adam and Eve said, on some days, yeah. But on one day, no. That's the nature of the sin. The Bible says here, if this man eats, it's, it's, what's, it's an errorist singular, it means once. It means once. Whatever it is that could be condemning, like, like guilt-ridden, if you do it once, you know the feeling. You know what I'm talking about. If this one eats, he stands condemned. This is not just self-condemnation. It's not. It's not just you feeling bad but shouldn't. It's you feeling like what you're doing is treasuring something over God. And that is sin. Condemnation. I believe this is Leon Morris. Condemnation comes not because of the thing being sin, eating anything one wants is fine to the believer. Rather, condemnation is eating when we believe it would be wrong, but just stop caring. That's the nature of these decisions. The 
worship of Christ as the Lord of our life. Let me explain that again with another cross-reference. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, I've already referenced this once before because Peter had a vision of God bringing down food in what looked like a sheet. And Peter says, oh, I have never defiled myself with that. And God says, don't call evil what I have called good. What was the problem? The problem wasn't, Peter, this conversation's over. Just eat. Get over it. That wasn't what God told him to do. Get over it. He said, see it the way I'm saying it. That's what he said. He didn't ask Peter to violate his conscience. He asked Peter's conscience to be matured. Because if Peter had just eaten what God had given him, thinking it was guilt-ridden, thinking it was sin to eat, it would have been sin to eat. Let me just give you an example. Uh, Bowing your head and thanking the Lord for lunch. Is it a sin if you eat lunch before you thank the Lord for the lunch? Is it a sin? No. The Bible tells us to be thankful. If you're thankless, that would be sin. But today when you sit down and have lunch... Do you commit a sin if you don't pray before you eat lunch? That kind of depends, doesn't it? So if you're in that moment where you say, boy, I'm really hungry, and it's a good part in the game, I just don't want to close my eyes right now because the Packers are in the red zone, and so I'm just going to start eating while I keep my eyes on the TV. (laughs) Sin! That's sin. You chose something other than the appropriate worship of God. But if you just start eating and... At 2.30 this afternoon, you go, oh, I didn't pray at lunch. That's a different issue. Can you see that? I hope I haven't oversimplified that, that, but that's the point. What is the attitude that led you to that action? That's a more important question than the action itself. He gives us reason why it would be sin. He says first, in verse 23, if he has doubt and yet does it, then his eating is not from faith. We have to act in accordance with our fundamental Christian faith. Second, he says whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. The apostle is pointing out the evil of conduct that springs from those motives like selfishness and greed. Faith is a humble reliance on God for salvation and perseverance. Here's another quote from, uh, I'll just say, an author. By the way, just pastorally, quick word. I hope you know that I don't say from some author because I'm quoting non-Christian heretics. The problem is, if I, if I tell you who that author is, then there's some dude on the web that's got a podcast that's going to tell you this guy's the Antichrist, okay? So I just can't tell you who that guy is because some guy's got a podcast that says that guy's the Antichrist. So I just can't even use the name, all right? Some take this as very general. By the way, 
just back to the podcast. If you know of any openings to just be the guy on the internet who tells you that every other person is evil and there's an opening in that job, let me know. I want to be the guy that tells the world someone else is a worse sinner than me. Um, Okay, so this particular podcast theme says this. Some take this as very general and see it as meaning that all works done prior to justification are sinful. Some people think it just means everything you did before faith was sin. However, Paul is referring to those actions of a believer that do not spring from a right faith. Paul's concern is with the believer who sometimes does things that are not motivated by faith. Those things have the nature of sin. That's Paul's concern. Now again, would you go back to Hebrews 10 with me? I think Hebrews 10 is going to bring some of this home. Um, My two points for us today, as we finish 14, now 15 is going to be similar. It's going to be a lot of more practical applications of this issue of living together as worshipers and making faith-filled choices. But as we finish 14, do we have a, a gospel confidence that the work of Christ, in fact, is done? I will work out an illustration that I I can't give you right now spontaneously. But I would just say that there are some things that we we would recognize as error that we commit in a different version. That's not profound. There are some things that we say, that's bad. But then we do them in just a different way. And we think then it's acceptable. Here's, here's, here would be the example that I'll, I'll try to illustrate in the future. Uh, how many of you have ever been to a church that performs a mass? A mass. I don't mean communion. I mean literally a mass. Okay. And there might have been a couple of things you noticed, all right? A couple things that you might notice, and I just want to point them out as examples. You might notice a depiction of the Christian cross where Jesus is still hanging on it. You might notice that. You might notice off to the side there is a spot where there's a bell. And at some point during the Mass, the bell rings. Anybody ever notice? Okay, the bell rings. Ding. Somebody over there rings the bell. Then you might also notice some mediator who's up front turning his or her back to everyone else and then calling Christ to come keep doing justifying work. Okay? And the bell rings to prove that that happened. Like Christ has left the throne and come back and is here to do redeeming work again. And then the blood and his body are distributed to people. And then those people who participate in that receive the redeeming work of Christ that he's doing again on that particular day, not just the day at Calvary. Okay? Now, we would look at that and we would say, oh, that is not right. The work of redemption is completed but then aren't there things that we do sometimes out of the motive like yeah Jesus got me in the room but if I'm going to be close to God I have to do these things 
confidence the work is completed. But it's okay to admit a confidence that the work is still ongoing. And honestly, it's not hard to admit. <laughs> like, just take a second and think about yourself for the last 24 hours. Think about your thought life. Think about your responses to frustration. <laughs> the work is not done. Right? Everyone want to stand up and give us an example of that? No. So take your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And let's look now at verse 19. Now the heading of verse 19 in my Bible is full assurance of faith. Earlier we read, Christ has completed the work of redemption. Christ has finished it. Drank the cup, announced to the world, and all the time it is finished. And then was seated at the right hand of God the Father. Then verse 19 of chapter 10 starts with the word, therefore. Therefore, because that work is done, we have some ongoing work that is still being done in us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence in or to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So here's an invitation to operate by the faith that we claim as saving faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil, what's the word? Conscience. Because of the work of Christ, you should operate with a heart that is sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Days where we think maybe some works of righteousness are good here. Don't waver into that because he who promised is faithful. It is ongoing work. And we are called to practice our faith before God. I want to read a couple more verses here because I want to say a word to any unsaved friends that we might have the privilege of being together with this morning. In verse 35. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need to endure so that when you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous ones shall live by faith. Righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their faith. I, I want to say to our unsaved friends. Christian faith is more than faith we had the moment we asked to be forgiven. That Christian faith is more than a confession of guilt. Christian faith is new DNA. It, it, it's operational confession. So we don't shrink back. We are not destroyed. We 
are preserved by faith. And I would ask this. Would you accept that your own conscience is being sanctified? Would you, would you confess that? Your own conscience is being sanctified. That the work is ongoing. Would, would you do two things with me right now? Would you say in, yourself, in your mind before the Lord, Lord, there are some things I used to think were really guilt-ridden things. I don't think that anymore. I have some. More than I'm willing to admit. Would I also say, Lord, I'm humble enough to confess that I might have some conclusions today that I'm going to grow out of someday. Is the work of the gospel ongoing? Are we walking in the light in a way that's exposing our own personal ideals to a truth that's going to change some of our opinions? That's not easy to do. There's a lot of humility in that. The things that I might even tell someone else are wrong, I might not even see as wrong 10 years from now. Because I'm not done growing, being sanctified. So I want to remind you that as you steward all these liberties, you have to steward them through the lens of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I want to give you some takeaway truths for today. We are all qualified, according to Edmund Burke says, we are all qualified for liberty in exact proportion to our disposition to put off our appetite. We're all qualified to have choices to the same extent we're willing not to take them. So let me give us seven takeaways for IBC. Seven takeaways for IBC. If you have a handout, there's a couple blanks here. I'll try to state them clearly. Seven things that I want us to take away as we close. There is diversity in a Christian church like ours. There's difference. And I want us to be very, very careful that we never suggest that that diversity is a problem. It's not a problem. It's an opportunity. It is not a problem. It's an opportunity. The fact that my own children have a diversity of gospel applications to their life than I do doesn't mean I say, we've got to get rid of these kids. If these, if, you know, Linnell and I, if, if, if it was just you and I, we would never have these gospel conversations about the choices we make. Because we, we agree on all this stuff. We just got to... We just got to have less, less other people in our house. That would never be an application. But yet the house of God, sometimes we might think that. Oh, there's so much diversity. So-and-so doesn't think the same way I do about these issues. I had I to go to a different family where there's no diversity. Where everyone says black shoelaces are necessary. And meanwhile, the world looks at our claim of the gospel and says, you people are nuts. Second, young converts should not be equally pressed with every right application of Scripture. We shouldn't feel that we have to, we have to persuade every young Christian 
who might come out of all sorts of different conscience-building contexts. Day one, sear that conscience and do what I say. That should not be our approach. William Plummer says in his commentary on this text, it's not wise to equally press immature converts or newly formed churches with every truth of Scripture. Third, those who are called weak in faith are not condemned to stay that way. Paul just gently prods the new Christian when he calls them weak. Just says, you know, it's kind of a weakness. Well, I don't want weakness. Yeah, nobody does. That's why I called it weakness. They are not condemned to stay that way. Number four, our aim in all of this has to be unity instead of uniformity. Do you welcome the difference between you and someone else? The disagreement and application of the gospel? Do you welcome that? Like when someone else says, I think that's sin, and you say, I don't think that's sin. Is that the last conversation you have, or do you say, hmm, it's probably good that I know people who think differently than I do. Paul uses words like accept each other, don't despise each other, don't condemn each other. Number five, we should discourage doubtful arguments. Discourage that strife. I, so I just used the, the ridiculous example of black shoelaces. And if there are a group of Christians after church today arguing about brown versus black shoelaces, that's preposterous. Discourage doubtful dispute. We should avoid hastily dismissing a brother or sister. Another commentator says this. <clears throat> a count, I'm sorry, a censoring spirit is hostile to the spirit of the gospel. If you're quick to denounce other people, we need to do some repenting and some reflecting. Number seven. Jesus is not merely our gracious friend and redeemer, he is the judge of the quick and the dead. Verse 9 and 14 says this, Christ died and lives again. Why? So that he might be Lord of the dead and the living. <clears throat> there is a sense where we can admit in our opinions that there is a righteous judge and it is not us. I'm not talking about absolutes. I'm not talking about black and white. I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about in areas of our opinions. We can admit that there is a good judge and he doesn't need our help. So, in these two points, Christ has finished it. And it's still working in us. It's not done. So to the one who doubts, if you find yourself weighing out a decision that you don't think is biblically forbidden, but you've become separated from the righteousness, peace, and joy of your confession, and you do it anyway, 
because it appeals to you or it satisfies you or gratifies you, it is sin. The work is still going. We are already, according to Ephesians, we're already sitting at the right hand of God the Father. It's done. It is so done that we are described as being seated in Christ next to God. It's already done. Walk by faith that God's work is finished. However, we are still not what we someday will be. We'll be like Jesus when we see him as he is, but that day's not here yet. Rest in the finished work, but be humble enough to anticipate that you're still being sanctified. And your practices and opinions and your conscience has room to grow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this truth because uh, there's a great threat to the Christian church where they will divide and abandon each other over things that are absolutely preferences. And still in your word calls us to display a unity so that the world may know that we belong to you love each other, persevere with each other so that the world will know. Have a unity in our diversity so that the world will know. And as soon as one opinion is advocated for, like sheep, we scatter. So your word shepherds us today, guards us from ourselves, and illuminates a path of righteousness for your name's sake. So grow us in the application of this. Thank you for your patience with me and with us as we have oftentimes advocated for our opinions in a way that is hurtful or harmful. Be glorified in the way that we grow from where we are now. In Christ's name, amen.